Well, good morning, everyone. Again, my name is Dean, and I'm the family ministry pastor here at Faith Cove. It really is so good uh, to be with you all this morning. And as you know, we are smack dab in the middle of Christmas commercial season. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's all of the different things that are out there. They all put on their own kind of festive flair for Christmas. They're all trying to market uh, to us something that they say we need uh, around the holiday season. Maybe it's that commercial about Santa fainting when he sees the M&Ms, right? And then the red M&M also faints because he saw Santa. Maybe it's the uh, Coca-Cola commercial where somehow a polar bear without opposable thumbs is able to enjoy an ice-cold beverage. Or maybe happy Honda days, right? Maybe Toyotathon. Uh, I don't know, but uh, commercials are, of course, only this uh, a symbol. They act kind of like a signpost, really. They're not the actual thing. They're just trying to point you to something. And in marketing, that obviously means they want you to buy something. Simply seeing the commercials doesn't mean you're actually eating M&Ms, nor does it mean you even intend to. You might not like M&Ms, but you might think the commercial is funny. And even when watching the commercial, you could get all the warm and fuzzy holiday feels about watching that SUV wander the top of a mountain with a log cabin you could never afford. But it's a whole other thing, of course, to actually go down to the dealership and buy one. These symbols and signposts do connect with us in some way. They can give us a certain feeling. They bring out some kind of response, but they don't mean we've connected with the actual thing. And I know that's not news to anyone. You're looking at me like, yeah, Dean, duh, I'm not going to buy a car this year. Um, but, we'll, but we can do that very thing, though, when it comes to Christmas and the season of Advent that we're in. See, far too often we engage only with the symbols or the signposts of Christmas and Advent, meaning we see them, but we just stay there. Seeing a manger scene, maybe singing Christmas carols, even our traditions here at church, they're all wonderful things, but we can still stay at a surface level. And don't get me wrong, I'm glad you're all here. I love decorating a manger scene, and, and I love being together for Christmas Eve, but it doesn't mean we've engaged with the real substance of Advent or the person of Jesus or the reality of the gospel that Advent is pointing us toward. We can stay at the level of traditions and symbols and songs and stories without requiring us to encounter substance. So the Advent season, or this Advent season, our theme has been a simple Christmas. Not a simplistic Christmas, but a simple Christmas. A simplistic Christmas happens when we only look at the signposts, but we don't engage with the real substance of who Jesus is. But much like the rest of our life, I think Christmas gets very complicated if it's simplistic. Why? Well, because we're just bouncing around on the surface. Going from one signpost to another, we feel an urgency even to quickly move from one thing to the next, desperately trying to fill the space of whatever it is that we're really hungering for. But when we bounce between lots of stuff and activities and things to do and stuff to buy, we're still longing for the real thing deep down. So we just end up on a treadmill that is both exhausting and complicated. See, despite what the commercials tell us, what we're really longing for is the presence of God in our life. 
to transform us. Whether we know that or not, we're not actually longing for the latest tech upgrade. We're not really longing for all the presents we want, we say that we want, but instead we're really longing to know deep down that we are loved by God and that our worth is not connected to something as fleeting as our stuff or the planned obsolescence of a new phone. It's not just have some traditions even to rehearse, even at church, but for our hearts to really be in awe of the great cost of Jesus stepping into our world. See, signposts are, are wonderful. Signposts are important. Signposts point us in the right direction, but they're also pointing us to the real thing. See, the answer to... Uh, the decision to answer then God's invitation and to engage with the person of Jesus is a choice we each have to make, regardless of how many times or how many ways we see the signposts. And this Advent season with the theme of a simple Christmas, in the midst of all the fun and activity the season may bring, our goal is to simply focus our attention on Jesus. Not just see a manger scene, but to look at Jesus, to who He is and the kind of character that He wants to form in us. The very thing the manger scene is really all about. God in the flesh humbling Himself for our sake. And when we engage with Jesus, when we can be honest with Jesus about where we are at, when we can be in awe of Jesus, when we can rest in God's love through Jesus, we start to imitate Jesus more and more. Becoming like Jesus is a process that does not always always involve the warm and fuzzy feelings that sometimes go along with certain parts of the holiday season. The stories we read about Jesus' birth during Advent long long before there was ever a holiday called Christmas or recreated manger scenes. The story of Christmas was written down to point to the love of God who would dare to become human, to step down from His throne and to be Emmanuel, God with us, to bear the weight of our sin for us. There are many things, of course, that this tells us about who God is and who God is also shaping us to be, but one of the most significant in how we relate to the world around us and to others is generosity. These past few weeks, we've been reading the words of John the Baptist who said about himself that he was only a signpost. He was not the real deal. He was not the Messiah. He was just pointing to the Messiah. Some people thought he might have been the Messiah, but instead he says in Luke 3, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So what was John doing then as a signpost? How was he pointing to the Messiah? Earlier in Luke 3, it says that John is fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah 40. This is what it says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. 
What John was doing by baptizing people and preaching was preparing them for the arrival of the Messiah. But what are the people waiting for as they wait for the Messiah? What does it mean when it says prepare the way for the Lord? From the time Isaiah was written all the way up until the time Jesus walked the earth, the people of Israel had been under oppression from other nations. The Bible records that they had turned away from God after everything God had done for them. And now the consequence that these other, uh, was that these other nations had come in. They'd conquered the land in some cases, sending many of them into exile far away. First it was the Babylonians, then it was the Persians, a few others along the way, and eventually now the Romans in the time of Jesus. There's a passage in the prophet Ezekiel that describes the glory of the Lord that had been in the temple, and it's leaving the temple. It's it's an incredibly scary, startling, frightening reality for the people of God. And even when the Jews are able to return from exile, and they're at least back home, but still under the rule of another nation, there's this sense that God's glory hasn't returned yet. The biblical scholar N.T. Wright says this, though, about that reality. But is the glory of God gone forever? No, the glorious presence of Yahweh is going to return So when we're in the New Testament and we see the voice of one crying in the wilderness, if we know our Isaiah, then the next thing we can expect is that God is going to return. Or you could say that God is about to be really generous. Generous in a way that can't even be comprehended. After all the times the people of Israel turned away, despite not deserving God's mercy, like all of us, God is going to return and be generous beyond their wildest imaginations, beyond our wildest imaginations. All the crowds seem to know when they see John, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, something big is about to happen. And they're curious about it. God is about to do something, so they're coming to be baptized. And you may remember John's response from the last few weeks of reading. Um, It's an interesting one to say, hi, how's it going? Welcome to the river. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized to him, you brood of vipers. I've never greeted anyone that way before in my life. Um... I'm not going to start now either. Uh, But who warned you, he says, to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The call to be ready for the Messiah is about being ready for a brand new thing. It's something that's never happened before. It won't be like any of the other experiences of rescue that they had had along the way. It's brand new territory. So they ask, what should we do then? And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized who were, by the way, notorious for stealing things from people. A teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. 
Notice how much of John the Baptist's challenge to the people around him, and I think also to us, is about money and about stuff. And most importantly, how our money and stuff impacts our relationship with other people and with God. In fact, the message throughout the Bible is that our spiritual life, which is really all of our life, is directly connected to how we manage our money and our possessions. But I I pondered this a lot. Why is it that John the Baptist has such a focus on giving, on generosity, not taking more than, than you are actually owed? Of all the things you could say, why is that? And I was, I was praying about that a lot this week. And what I felt like God was saying was that in waiting for the Messiah to come, it was crucial to put generosity front and center because there would be clearer hearts and minds to see what God was doing. Because the salvation from God that's about to come is not something that anybody earned. It wasn't something that God decided to do because he looked down and was like, yep, they're religious enough now, now I'll show up. See, this salvation is pure generosity. So it's almost like John is saying, if you don't have a mindset of generosity that rejects the world's way of grabbing more and more and more, you'll miss the whole thing God's about to do. Or maybe it could be even worse than that. It could happen right in front of you. And you could see him face to face, and and you could dismiss everything that this Messiah is saying is nonsense. God is a human? God taking on the sin of the world through a person? Who does that? I mean, come on. I can't get behind something that crazy. Let's just crucify him and be done with it. This guy's a lunatic. That's why John also said the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit or does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John is not messing around because the greatest gift ever is standing in their midst. But we know that the salvation God was offering was about dealing with the sin in each of our hearts. Again, it was not like all of the other rescues that had happened up to that point. There was going to be something new, something different So the call to generosity is something that will become fully realized, not in advance of Jesus' coming, but through Jesus' arrival and death and resurrection. The kind of generosity God is calling us to couldn't even be conceived without witnessing the generosity of God in action through Jesus and then being empowered by God's Spirit to then live it out. After Jesus' resurrection, this is exactly what we see happen in the early church. The Holy Spirit comes and the early church just starts selling their stuff. They start giving to anyone in need, sharing everything. And what if at every point we look ahead and we're wondering, what's next? What is God about to do in us, in our lives, in the midst of our church and our congregation? What's God going to do? What if generosity was always a part of it? God being generous to us and then us being generous to others, which isn't just about money. It's not just about finances, but it does include our money. It does include our stuff. Last week, Pastor Kurt talked about simplicity in contrast to materialism. Stuff and money can easily become an idol in our life, and simplicity stands in contrast to always packing our life with more. 
Because getting stuff is almost like a drug, right? Getting a new thing makes you feel good. You know what I'm talking about? You go to the store, you get that new thing, you're excited about it. You're like, look at this arm, look at this bag I got on my arm. I got something in here. I got a little prize for myself. And then it entertains us for a while. It keeps us occupied. But then the feeling wears off. And then you got to get another hit. And then you got to get another one and another one. And it never ends. Stuff is a terrible master. God is trying to set us free from stuff, to set us free from believing that our life is wrapped up all of the time in our stuff. Our spiritual life is directly connected to how we manage our money and possessions. But isn't that good news? I mean, for those of us in America, having so much, hearing the challenge, not just from John the Baptist, but really all of Scripture, to not let our life be defined by materialism, it just kind of sounds like you're asking people to punish themselves. Like, why would you ever do that? Why would you not want to get everything possible for yourself? Generosity, that sounds like just depriving yourself of all the good things that are available to you in the store that you've been working so hard for. Why would I give up all that when I want to get all that? See, greed presents itself as logical. The more we have, the better. The more we store up, the better off we'll be. And there's a longing for something. Maybe it's security or pleasure or comfort or significance. And that's, it's at the center of greed. And if we just get more, then we'll have that thing that we're trying to get. And there's certainly something to be said of having our basic needs met like food and clothes and shelter, and also feeling a sense of, of purpose to know that we are loved. And it's often those very things that God challenges us to be generous with towards others. See, the problem with greed isn't trying to seek out security or food or significance or love. It's doing it through all the wrong places. Believing that money and stuff can meet those deeper longings and then hoarding the resources that could be given to bless someone else. Scripture is always pointing us back to God that He is the source of all of those things. All of those deeper longings we're really aiming for is all found in Jesus. What joy to know that the free gift of God's grace means we have everything we need. We have purpose, not just distraction. We have God's comfort, not just a comfortable life. And we have learned that those with lots of stuff, or even just using their money for endless things, endless experiences, they're not actually happier. There's all kinds of studies on this. Usually it just means the wealthier you are, you have more to protect and keep from getting stolen. And having everything often means being unhappy because we spend so much time in our life being told that we need more, 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 that the letdown is enormous when you get everything you want and you realize it's still not enough. Because then what are you left with? Then where do you go? Then what do you do? It's like meeting your childhood hero only to find out that that person that you've looked up to your whole life is nowhere close to the kind of person you ever want to be or imitate. See, connecting with simplicity, generosity comes from imitating our Savior. And when it does, you could say that, that when we see the signposts and the, of the Advent season 
And then we do what those signposts say, and we're generous, not just in December, but all year. It serves as a way of, of freeing us from the tyranny and treadmill of greed. This is really good news. In one of the most materialistic societies, you could say, even in the history of the world, where most of the solutions materialism offers for what is ailing us just create more problems. It's good news to know that generosity can be like a a healing balm for your soul. To act like our Savior and to give, especially when it costs us something, is a declaration that our life is not defined by the box of whatever we own. But it's defined by the kingdom of God and the love and redemption of our Savior. But make no mistake, generosity is not about us or how we feel. It's not just about the best way to recover from being a stuff addict. There's a very um, interesting moment in a Seinfeld episode where George Costanza is telling his friend Jerry, in fact, he's insistent that he would make a great philanthropist. His language is a little bit more colorful than that, but we'll just say great philanthropist. He tells Jerry, I would have all this money and people would love me. Then they would come to me and beg, and if I felt like it, I would help them out, and then they would owe me big time. First thing I'm going to need is a driver. Now, it's funny, but it's also not too far off the mark, right? Even in generosity, our culture has trained us to think we're supposed to somehow be the center of attention But the signposts of Advent point us to generosity because it's at the core of God's character, not because it makes you feel better than shopping for yourself. It's about seeing someone else's need, just as God did for us and does every day, and then responding. Not because someone else owes you something or could ever pay you back. This is just who God is. Our spiritual life is directly connected to how we manage our money and possessions. Generosity is not about us or how we feel, but looking instead to the needs of others. But it is also about our willingness. Not from obligation, not begrudgingly forking over something because we feel pressured. In fact, one of the greatest gifts I have ever received has become for my family this example of what generosity looks like. It was right at the start of Advent just last year, and we found out that the home we had been living in for five years, we could no longer be in. It's a long, long, long story, but suffice it to say, we had to get out, and we had to be out before Christmas. And we found this news out at the end of November. So we had about three weeks to pack up all of our stuff. And we also knew that our time in California was ending, and we still didn't know where we were going to go or when, so we couldn't sign a new 12-month lease. But as soon as we got this news, we immediately knew who to call. Our friends John and Gwen. See, John and Gwen had a whole extra half of their house they weren't using. Their kids were grown and out of the house. They didn't just come to mind because of the space they had, though. Our call to them was not out of the blue, and they didn't receive it as being pressured at all because they had repeatedly given us the offer to come and live with them if we were ever in need. I think three or four times Gwen said, hey, if you ever want to come live with us, though, you just let me know. And we were like, I think we're okay, Gwen. I think we're okay. And finally, we were not okay. 
And when we called and asked, at first they actually rejected our request because they said we were offering them too much money for rent. And they said, nope, you can't offer us that much. It's got to be less than that. Okay. And then they went out of their way to buy an old fridge from someone so that we would have our own space for our food. I mean, over and over again, they kept saying it wasn't a burden to have us there in the house. It was a joy to be able to share it with us. John and Gwen embodied generosity for us in a way that deeply impacted us because we knew that this was just who they are. They were always willing to take in other families who needed a place to stay or a missionary visiting for a few months even. Generosity wasn't something that came from a f- just feeling charitable at a certain point or feeling sorry for us. It was a way of life. It was about discipleship, the kind of generosity John the Baptist is talking about, the kind Jesus talks about throughout the Gospels. It was about following Jesus for John and Gwen. As Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Our spiritual life is directly connected to how we manage our money and possessions. And we could easily add to that how we manage our time and our talent, as we say around here. There's many ways to give. Treasure, time, talent. Generosity is about imitating our Savior in all that we have. Because all that we have in this life is temporary anyway. But the kind of generosity Jesus demonstrates is is not one that only gives to those deemed worthy enough. Romans 5.8 reminds us that God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how God is telling us to be generous. And i got to tell you, this challenges me, because I really want to put barriers on generosity. Don't you? Right? Don't you kind of want to decide who is and who isn't worthy? I mean, if greed isn't the barrier for us being generous, nor a fear of being inconvenienced, it may be the way we see people, who's worthy or not. And, you know, of course, some gifts may just be enabling someone to continue in a self-destructive pattern or could be giving them a reason to not make any effort of their own. That's true. But I found that is such an easy, quick answer in our culture. Even before we have a chance to talk with someone often or even hear their story. And what if regardless of whether we gave financially, we continue to look to the example of our Savior to be generous in the way we had compassion for others, to be generous in the way we listened? What if our generosity was creative enough by the power of the Holy Spirit to give to those we might otherwise consider or that the world might tell us are not worthy? What if generosity meant we asked the Holy Spirit to show us opportunity to go beyond the boxes or boundaries of our own little world, to find those on the margins who are in need? In the same way that generosity was a precursor to being ready for the Messiah, what if generosity is always part of what God is doing? What if it's always right in the middle? I mean, when you think of things that God calls us back to, Right, the basics, if you will. The things that, that church and, and our life together and our community is never going to not have. Right? Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I mean, is the biblical idea of any of those without generosity at its core 
of giving something of yourself or of what you have to make God's kingdom more known, to lift up those who are in need or hurting or lonely or to announce the good news in the midst of darkness. It can't happen without generosity. It doesn't happen without sacrifice for others, sacrifice that doesn't make sense to greed or materialism. And this morning, maybe you're feeling like generosity sounds overwhelming, though. Perhaps a good question is, what practical step of generosity you might take? If giving hasn't been part of your life, what is a small step you could take to increase generosity in your life? If you've already been giving of money, what about giving of your time? If you've already been giving of your time, what about giving of your talent? We've had some opportunities already this Advent season, the giving tree, collecting gifts for the senior care facility, passing out hot cider to the community, and you may know that family, uh, the family ministry teams here at Faith Cove have been collecting hygiene items, donations with your help. Our students and kids are packing these hygiene kits to bring to a ministry called the Coffee Oasis that has shelters for homeless and at-risk youth. I, I was challenging some of our kids about a week ago to think about what would it be like to see it as good news to get a, a bag of hygiene items. What might be happening in your life to receive a bag like that and say, Finally, thank you, just to get some soap. If you haven't had a chance yet, you could, you could drop off a donation of a few items to the office this week. We're packing some more of these kits on Wednesday night. We also talk a lot about different ways, again, to give it faith covenant. Time, talent, treasure. Giving financially is certainly part of what that means, but generosity also means part of being part of the ministries happening throughout the year in different ways. Maybe it's an hour here or there, or maybe it's more consistent. But in whatever ways you are able to give, pray that God would open your eyes to how you can be generous. It's not just about the institution, though. It's not just about the programs. It's not just about the building of the church. It's not just what happens inside the walls of Faith Cove. God is sending us, His people, into the world. God is is always presenting us with ways to be generous to our coworkers, our neighbors, even strangers. So whether you're giving to Faith Covenant or another ministry, or just someone in need, is there a new way God is calling you to be generous? If you feel this tug to be generous today, generous in a way you haven't been before, guess what? You don't have to wait. There are no tryouts for the generosity team. Isn't that really good news? Like, that's, that's awesome. Like, there's no, there's no graduation ceremony or anything. You just do it. You just trust God and follow the Holy Spirit's leading. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, on Emmanuel, God with us, on the greatest gift we could have ever received. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. And as we respond now again in worship, remember that the signposts of the Advent season Point us to God's gracious gift. That's why we worship. That's why we worship every week. And for whatever God has next for us, for our church, let's keep our eyes fixed on God's generosity. Will you pray with me? 
God, you have been abundantly generous to us in ways that we cannot even begin to fathom. God, your word says that what you have planned for us, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. God, and we know that whatever is coming next for this church, for our community, that there are so many ways that you plan to be generous to us. And so, God, we pray that we would receive that generosity with open hands, but that we would also keep our hands open to continue to give that same generosity to others. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.